You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History can surprise us. Here's an example. One day in 1822, a married couple strolling near a quarry in West Sussex, England, Marianne and Gideon Mantell, and he was an amateur paleontologist, came across something that stood out from the quarry rock, a pair of fossilized teeth. My, my, Gideon, these teeth are so large. To whom or to what do they belong? Perhaps a giant man with inadequate dentistry. No, to my eyes it looks like a giant reptile of some sort. Ah, we should consider this further over tea. It's already half three. The teeth were later determined to come from a giant iguana. Gideon Mantell and other paleontologists came up with the name Iguanodon and imagined that the animal had been some sort of large quadruped that resembled a rhinoceros. Only the teeth didn't belong to an oversized iguana or a rhino. What the Mantells had found, of course, was the first evidence that the world was once populated by dinosaurs. But this was only the first of many surprises about dinos. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists investigate the nature and the origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and that includes stepping back in time. Now, modern technology has given us unprecedented tools to more effectively investigate the buried past. And sometimes what we uncover is so surprising that we have to reconsider our understanding of history. And that brings us back to those dinos. So after the Mandel's toothy discovery was understood to be that of a dinosaur, well, spade-wielding paleontologists began digging up dino bone after dino bone. But then we pulled another paleontological puzzle out of the mud about dinos. Dinosaurs hadn't gone entirely extinct. Some had evolved to birds. Fossils began to turn up. 
that suggested that birds evolved from small dinosaurs. So sometimes when we go digging around, we not only prompt a startling new discovery of what happened in the past, but we also upset our understanding of the present. And in this case, it's the remarkable realization that chicken farmers are really dino farmers. So the knowledge about the past is always interesting and sometimes revelatory. But what if what we uncover is an uncomfortable truth about ourselves? Do we really want to know? It's Hidden History on Big Picture Science. When people think of the city of Atlantis, well, they conjure up a once great metropolis somewhere in the Mediterranean, an advanced seafaring city perhaps on an island, and from 11,000 years ago sporting the latest in Bronze Age technology. At any rate, people imagine it as a prosperous city that suddenly disappeared into the sea without leaving a trace. The fate of Atlantis and whether it even existed has long been a source of fascination and the motivation for more than a few archaeological expeditions. But this is a kind of fantastical story. So what would convince archaeologists to pack their picks and shovels and maybe their snorkels, never mind writing grant proposals, and go and search for this lost city? Well, what we know about Atlantis actually comes from a pretty reliable source. The guy who loved to dialogue long before corporate executives did that over lattes, the philosopher Plato. He writes about Atlantis in two dialogues, the Timaeus and the Critias. The fact that the story came from Plato gives it some heft. I mean, he's only one of the greatest thinkers of Western civilization. However, it's not clear in Plato's writing whether Atlantis was a real historical city or an allegory for a utopian society that he writes about in the Republic. Plus, even in his writings, there seems to be a game of telephone involved. Or at least a game of tablet and scroll, because Plato writes in his dialogues that he wasn't the primary source of this story. I heard about Atlantis from grandfather, but admittedly I knew him only as a flickering shadow on a cave wall. Great Hera, my grandson said I was the source on Atlantis? No, I came by it from one of the seven wise men of Greece, the Athenian statesman Solon. It did not originate with me. I learned of Atlantis from an Egyptian priest, but he said the city had flourished 9,000 years before him. And by the way, he said it made Alexandria look like a second-rate village, but you didn't hear that from me. Okay, so this city, if it did exist, was doing its urban thing around 9,000 years prior to Plato. That makes it about 11,000 years ago. No indisputable evidence has ever come to light that Atlantis really did exist. Now, if Atlantis were found, well, that might very well change our understanding of ancient history. So is it real? Is it a literary allegory used by Plato? Writer Mark Adams traveled around the world seeking an answer by speaking with people who are hunting for Atlantis. Meet Me in Atlantis is his book, My Obsessive Quest to Find the Sunken City. Plato wrote The Republic, arguably the most influential work in Western civilization. And then after that, he wrote something called the Timaeus, which was his attempt to give a sort of mathematical logic to the universe. It's one of the foundational texts of physics. In between, linking those two is the first part of the story of Atlantis. So obviously you have to ask, here are two of the works that Plato put the most effort into, and you've got Atlantis in the middle. Why? Well, why? I mean, <laughs> that's the question now, isn't it? I mean, clearly... He was trying to say something important. I mean, he's not an historian, right? He's not just writing, oh, by the way, here's a little bit of uh, interesting history for you. Well, he's not a historian, but he uses a lot of 
elements that seem to be historical. What a lot of people forget is that the story of Atlantis is also the story of Athens. It's a story of a naval battle between two empires. There are three or four major points from the Athens half of the story that seem to have been confirmed by archaeology in the last hundred years. Well, what did he say about Atlantis? Because he, he gave a lot of detail, and he said something like, a highly advanced society living on an island that's sunk into the ocean. I mean, you know, there were details. There were, there were numbers. There were, tell, tell me something about those. He gave an incredible amount of detail, and I think that's why people are sucked into searching for Atlantis. It's almost like he's giving GPS coordinates. He says, you know, it's you know, this many stades, and the stade was the sort of standard Greek distance, about 600 feet long. You know, it was this many stades from the sea, and it had temples that were this many stades long by this many states wide, and it had three concentric rings of water and land in between, and it was attached to this large plane, and he gives the dimensions of the plane and, and uses all sorts of geometric patterns. He says it's outside the pillars of Hercules. You know, I mean, there's tons of information in there, and yet it's just vague enough that you can't quite put your finger on it. Did he say why it sank? I mean, did you know the Atlantans have this coming? They did, actually. Uh, well, to be precise, they angered Poseidon, but uh, since that's probably not the literal reason, I think what happened was that they became a sort of debased society, and like many debased societies, Rome and such, they didn't see their downfall coming, and it hit them hard. With all this detail, it makes it sound to me as if it would be pretty easy to locate this ancient civilization if it actually existed. And uh, after all, you know, at the end of the 19th century, uh, this guy Heinrich Schliemann, you know, he, he, I think he was an amateur, actually, amateur archaeologist, and, and he finds that Troy was not just something that appeared in these ancient stories, you know, the Iliad, the Odyssey, whatever, that it actually existed. Same with Mycenae. So, you know, you can't say that Atlantis, oh, it's just like the Emerald City of Oz. It might really be there. There was precedent for trying to find this place. Absolutely. Schliemann's great leap forward was that he took the Iliad as if it were a map. And he took the details and he said, okay, the wall runs around here and here's where Achilles chased what's his name and, and I believe that the gate should be here and such. And he started digging and he found it. Well, actually, Schliemann found it and then he kept digging and he destroyed the, the real Troy that he was looking for and found a Troy about four levels below that. But he did find Troy probably. He found the Troy basement. <laughs> well, who is looking for Atlantis today, Mark, or at least theorizing about where somebody else ought to do the looking? Right. Well, typically, the person who is looking for Atlantis is a spirited amateur who's using, you know, satellite photos that he can now get online and things like that. The people I found looking around the globe, the locations were southern Spain, and somebody actually published an article in the journal Antiquity there using satellite photos that seemed to have the same shapes that Plato had described as being in the central of those, those three concentric rings. Uh, very compelling. Um, then I went to Malta, where they have the oldest temples in the Mediterranean, a thousand years older than even the great temple at Giza. Plato says Atlantis was a city of temples and that it was destroyed by a watery cataclysm. Malta seems to have been destroyed by a watery cataclysm around 2500 BC. The one place that, you know, scholars and academics take somewhat seriously is Santorini, an island off of Greece, and that is because around 1600 BC there was a huge explosion there, it's called the Thera explosion, and it left a bullseye-shaped island. So those are the concentric rings. And then in 1967, they found a city there, Akrotiri, buried under about 20 feet of ash that seems to have many things in common with the Atlantis that Plato described. 
you've been to some of these sites. I've been to all of them, sure. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, did any of them really impress you to the extent that you thought, you know, if I had to bet, this is the place where I'd say Atlantis once stood? You know, it's hard to say because when you're there in the moment, the person giving his theory is a mesmerist. And it's like they have the gold watch in front of you. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> this, this is, Malta's got to be it. I can't believe I finally found it. And then you get away and you're like, uh, well, actually, there's a few flaws in that theory. <laughs> um, the one that people have really latched on to, and this may say something about life in America in 2015, is the guy who used data analysis, an, an IT guy from Bonn, Germany. And what he did was he took dozens and dozens of details from Plato and plugged them into an algorithm, and it churned out at the end. His description was, you know, perhaps the six sigma, this is seven sigma. <laughs> so, you know, 99.999% possibility that he had found the right Atlantis. Are all these people amateurs? I mean, are there any <laughs> pedigreed academics that are looking for Atlantis or even theorizing about Atlantis? You know, I didn't find anyone who is searching for Atlantis per se, but I did find some people who took the idea that Plato's Atlantis has some truth in it seriously. There were some folks out at Woods Hole who saw that there might be some, some parallels between the Minoan culture that disappeared not long after the Thera explosion on the island of Crete. There were some anthropologists I spoke with who explained how you would go to an old myth and try to find the truth in it. There's a, a fairly new discipline called geomythology where you compare ancient poetry to disasters like Thera. And there's actually a poem by the, uh, the poet Hesiod around 700 B.C. that seems to be an exact description of the Thera explosion passed down 900 years. I think that Plato said that Atlantis was located beyond the pillars of Hercules. Now... I think the general interpretation of the Pillars of Hercules is that those are the Straits of Gibraltar. So that would suggest that the right parts of Spain might qualify. Well, if you use the standard definition of the Pillars of Hercules, it would be Gibraltar. And therefore, the hypothesis that it's in southern Spain would work. But there were also Pillars of Hercules at the Straits of Messina, which would line up with Malta. Some people have said that there were Pillars of Hercules at the southern end of the Peloponnesus, which would mean it could have been in Santorini. And uh, the place in Morocco is also just outside of Gibraltar, so that could count as well. Okay, so there are lots of Pillars of Hercules. There were apparently close to a dozen sets of Pillars of Hercules. This is like where George Washington slept, <laughs> something like that. You, now, talking to some of these people who are very keen on the Atlanta story, I mean, some of them give a lot of time to this, right? Yeah, I mean, for some of them, it's it's a hobby, and for some of them, it's almost like a full-time It's an passion. obsession. It, it is an obsession. Okay, but why? I mean, why has this story endured and why is anyone putting all this time and occasionally money into uh, trying to find this city? Well, first of all, because it's a great story. You know, a powerful civilization suddenly disappears in a day and a night. It, it's almost like Star Wars, you know, where the Death Star blows up. And the other thing is, is it's arguably the greatest mystery in history. Was this real or was this not real? And to be the person who solves that mystery is going to be the biggest feather and the biggest cap of all time. All right. Well, Mark, the bottom line is that uh, no one yet has convincing proof that they know where Atlantis is or was. But suppose that changes. Suppose someone, I don't know, doing underwater archaeology or they're involved in a dig somewhere in Morocco or Spain or something actually trips across a vanished city that matches all the details that Plato gave us. What would that mean for history, for example? Well, it would rewrite ancient history. We're still learning things about this period between 1175 and 1225 B.C. when all sorts of cataclysms seem to be going on 
around the Mediterranean, earthquakes, volcanoes, things like that. There are mass migrations. One of the bits of history that comes from the Egyptian hieroglyphs is this story of the Sea Peoples who attack Egypt in 1177 B.C. That may be part of the Atlantis story. That may be the story of invaders coming from the West and attacking and the Greeks aiding the Egyptians or whatever as part of the defense of Egypt. So if we do find that Atlantis was real, it will change ancient history. Well, you've been on an odyssey to learn the truth about Atlantis. You've found shadows, I guess. How has Atlantis changed you? Well, first of all, to find shadows is perfectly appropriate because Plato, of course, saw the shadows on the wall of the cave. How has it changed me? It has made me sort of question taking things at face value and realizing that I have to dig deeper than I had expected to, to find, you know, there are things in Plato's story like numerical codes and music and things like that. And you realize that if you do dig deeper, you'll find things you never expected to find. Mark Adams, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Mark Adams is the author of Meet Me in Atlantis, My Obsessive Quest to Find the Sunken City. It's an incredible story. It is, and it's very tantalizing. It's sort of like, I don't know, reading about Treasure Island. You know, as a kid, you want to find an island where there might be buried treasure. Well, Atlantis is a whole city that's buried somewhere, maybe. You know, when he was talking about those um, those concentric circles, I started to think about crop circles. Really? I, I thought of Amsterdam because it has these concent- well, it has these concentric canals. It's got the and it's got more than three, as it turns out. But you know, and it was about the same size. I think that Plato actually gives dimensions for the city and also for you know some of the structures there and the dimensions to the island, which it was supposedly on. And and they're not small. This is not you know the size of a football field. This is a big place if it existed, and it could very well have been a, a society, a, you know, in the Western Mediterranean or somewhere else. I I really like the fact that uh, Mark Adams tells you about the fact that there are like a dozen pillars of Hercules around the Mediterranean. They were everywhere. Uh, so we really don't have too much indication of where this, where this thing is. And of course, that adds to the appeal, but it also adds to the difficulty of trying to nail it down. But as you said, it, if it is an allegory, that is still a powerful story in that it's a cautionary tale. It tells you that even great civilizations don't last forever. Yes, Maybe that's the real value of Atlantis, that you think you're the greatest thing going, and then we're just going to sink the whole effort. You know, one story that he told that made me cringe was the story of Schliemann looking for Troy and then digging down and then actually destroying one layer of the city that he had found, and he had to dig down again to find another layer that, was, that, that could be saved. He went too far. That's well, one dig that went too far. <laughs> well, I was thinking more that if you don't succeed, then you Troy, Troy again. Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> great. So, clearly, Atlantis is an example of a potential discovery that could truly change our understanding of ancient history. But the bottom line is, we still haven't found that city. But what about scientific endeavors where we do uncover evidence of some event that has changed history? Such as what killed off the dinosaurs. Scientists have a very strong theory, but now some scientists are asking whether that's the whole story. Can they uncover the truth? It's Hidden History on Big Picture Science.
This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. We all miss the dinosaurs, not the bird variety because they're flocking among us, but the gargantuan beasts that once lorded it over the landscapes. I mean, these guys were pretty impressive. Although admittedly, the upkeep if they were still around would be pretty challenging. Uh, sir, what's this additional $2,900 charge on my tax bill here? It says city maintenance. Yeah, but... Uh, dinosaur wear and tear tax hike. What, again? Hey, ever since those dino activists voted to allow dinosaurs to legally roam off-leash, we can't keep up with the repairs. We got potholes the size of... Uh, uh, T-Rex foot, yeah, I know about that. Rooftop gardens have disappeared north of 50th Street. Yeah, but... I mean, personally, I don't mind the absence of small dogs. But every car that these reptiles turned into a flattened falafel has to be hauled off. And don't get me started on the sidewalks. Wear hip waders and watch your step. That's all I'm saying. Well, whether or not we missed the dinosaurs, one fact can give us comfort. If they hadn't exited the scene, you and I wouldn't be here. Their disappearance made room for the triumphal march of the mammals. Unlike Atlantis, we know that the dinosaurs existed. I mean, they roared and stomped for nearly 150 million years. And why they suddenly stopped was once one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of all time. But then we solved it, with evidence found in layers of rock and a crater uncovered underneath the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. But is that the whole story? Well, you'll hear a challenge to the conventional view in a moment. But first, what we do know. I'm David Morrison. I'm a senior scientist at NASA Ames Research Center. Dave, the dinos and 50% or more of all other species disappear 65 million years ago. What's the explanation? The explanation is an asteroid impact, and that is one of the most dramatic discoveries of my lifetime in science. It's a revolution. Before the evidence came in, no one thought asteroids were a danger to anybody, let alone the dinosaurs. But the data, the facts, that's what drove it when they discovered in this thin boundary layer in the stratigraphy between before 65 million years ago and after the mass extinction, there is a layer about the width of your finger that contains the key information about what happened at that point in time. And that was? Largely, it was produced by Louis Alvarez and his son and his colleagues at Berkeley who discovered this thin layer of material with extraterrestrial stuff in it, iridium and other things that could only have come from meteorites or asteroids. And there was shocked material, that is grains of silicate that had been through a violent explosion and heating. 
That combination tells you something from space hit with a gigantic explosion. Is there more evidence? Did we find where this rock hit? First, we found that this evidence is pervasive. That boundary between the Cretaceous and Tertiary periods exists all over the Earth. It's not just in one location. Then we found the place it hit in what's now near Merida in, in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, but then was, uh, was partly underwater, a gigantic crater, one of the largest on Earth, that precisely matches this point in time. I'm trying to imagine I'm a dinosaur 65 million and one years ago, and I'm living a healthy dino lifestyle. What happens to me, even if I'm not anywhere near where this asteroid hits the Earth? This gigantic impact lofted a tremendous amount of material clear above the atmosphere. And when it fell back over the whole Earth, it ignited just meteors coming one after another and produced a heat pulse so that most of the grasslands and the Forests went up in flames. Basically, almost everything alive was roasted. And then in addition, a lot of this fine, dusty material stayed in the atmosphere and blocked the sun almost completely for a period of a year or two years. So you have this double whammy. First you have roasting, and then you have cold and darkness and photosynthesis ceases. It was really a bad day. And, and so this has become the accepted explanation for this great extinction event. Absolutely. It certainly is the cause of the marine extinction. That is this pervasive loss of animals in the oceans. And then by inference, it had to do the dinosaurs too, because the dinosaurs were healthy all over the earth before that point in time. And after that point, there are no skeletons. I am Peter Ward, a paleontologist at the University of Washington, and I had the great fun in an earlier part of my career of discovering that dinosaurs were killed off by asteroids. Such an easy, simple, elegant theory. Trouble is, it isn't quite that simple anymore. The dirty little secret has always been that, in fact, there was also a huge volcanic outpouring at about the same time. That outpouring came from the Deccan Traps in India, one of the largest volcanic sites in the world. They produced what's called flood volcanism, when huge amounts of hot, gooey lava oozed and spread all over, along with the outgassing of lots of carbon dioxide. Dr. Ward is among the paleontologists who are intrigued by the evidence unearthed in the Antarctic Peninsula and other places, suggesting that the Deccan Traps erupted just 100,000 years before that space rock slammed into Earth, which, in geologic terms, is considered concurrent. Well, the really hard part about discovering how a calamity happened 65 million years ago is what if you want to know what happened 65.1 million years ago? The big problem is always dating. How can we get really refined slices of time prior to a known impact event? And so there you have to get ever better increases in your ability to parse time. And using such methods, we were able to look at rocks in Antarctica that were deposited 100,000 years before the impact. And it was the new dating techniques which let us do this at all. And there we found using a different technique that the temperature of the world went up to about five to six degrees centigrade all over the world at about, again, 100,000 years prior to the impact. Now, now wait a minute. You're saying it was five or six degrees centigrade warmer uh, just before the impact, uh, 
It, it certainly wasn't the heat that did in the dinos, was it? No. What happened was we had this outpouring of lava in, in ancient India. It's called the Deccan flood basalts. And these produce so much carbon dioxide, global warming, that we have a vegetation die-off, a mollusk die-off, a fish die-off, a huge hit to the biosphere in the 100,000 years prior to the impact. I like to think of it as the boxing analogy. All those little hits to the midsection that don't seem to be the knockout everybody looks for. In fact, they soften it up. And we seem to have a two-part extinction here. We have what we call a greenhouse mass extinction, which is what all the rest were. And then on top of that, talk about bad days, then we get an impact. Neither by themselves would have done as much damage as both combined, those body blows prior to, and then the hit to the chin of the world, so to speak, knocks it out. So one-two punch. Now, is it just the heat? The heat is causing, as you say, the die-off in the plants, the animals, the fish, and so forth. So the whole food chain is disrupted. You have talked in the past about a certain kind of noxious gas that might accompany this warming. Maybe you could tell me something about that. Well, we, we know that these other greenhouse extinctions, all of which were caused by rapid global warming, in fact, are often accompanied by the formation of anoxic or zero oxygen bottom waters. And when that happens, you get very different types of bacteria in the ocean, and they thrive, and they start producing, in the lack of oxygen, a byproduct of the respiration called hydrogen sulfide. This is the rotten egg nasty stuff. Um, this is the, the wonderful post-taco bean effect that all of us can understand. Our nose is actually very good at, at detecting a few parts per million because it's such a dangerous, poisonous stuff. In the case of the pre-dinosaurs, we don't seem to find a whole lot of hydrogen sulfide, but a little bit coming out. But look, we're seeing a world today where in the next century, if we had a five degree temperature rise, which is pretty much what happened in the years before the impact happened, you have so much biosphere disruption. Plants just can't move fast enough to keep up with climate change. So we're really looking at a very similar scenario to all that volcanic produced carbon dioxide, except now it's volvos instead of volcanoes. And would you say, Peter, that when you uh, describe your theory here, that it was actually this one-two punch and not just the rock that uh, hit the Yucatan 65 million years ago, uh, when you explain this in polite company, do people just uh, uh, you know, leave you and refresh their drinks or do they accept this? I mean, is this an outlier theory at this point or is this well accepted? No, it's not outlier at all. What was really outlier for a long time was that mass extinction could be caused by anything but impact. I mean, we went from 1980 with the Alvarez to a complete paradigm shift, if you will, from this idea that slow Darwinian climate change caused mass extinction to this sort of neo-catastrophism. Oh, yeah, it's got to be fast. And therefore, five of the big five mass extinctions were at one time or another in the last 20 years blamed on impact. Well, we've gone back to what appears to be combinations, and the world is never simple. Mass extinction wasn't simple. The only simple part is all the dead creatures everywhere. Paleontologists have certainly looked for evidence of, uh, you know, impacts for some of these other extinction events. And as far as I know, they haven't found too many convincing uh, examples. Well, that's exactly right, Seth. We, I was one of these. I went to South Africa looking for this. I went to various places in the Triassic, and I went to the Devonian. Many 
places in Earth history because I was convinced by 1990 that everything was caused by impact, and it was no, no, no. Uh, so it was it was an interesting thing. The Alvarez theory really pushed us, all of us, to go out and look for evidence of this. In the meantime, we learned so much more that we hadn't expected to find that it made the science much, much richer. Well then, finally, Peter, tell me how this matters. I mean, obviously it's of interest to paleontologists, maybe biologists, zoologists, I don't know, whether it was an asteroid, whether it was the gas, whether it was the heating. But, you know, aside from these, if you will, kind of technical arguments, why should we care? Well, I've just come back from a very interesting conference, and I was rather horrified to find out that the rate at which carbon dioxide is increasing on our planet now is now known to be faster than any time in Earth history. Earth history is a long time, 4.6 billion years. We know that the greatest single mass extinction, the Permian extinction, was caused by alone rapid carbon dioxide rise, and that we are now increasing that level far faster than even during the most calamitous of mass extinctions. I think it um, doesn't take a rocket scientist or an alien hunter to recognize that we are potentially in big trouble. So, Peter, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is understanding what did in the dinos, plus all those other species that have been wiped out during these extinction events, is critically important to our own survival. I mean, this is not just academia talking. Well, in a way, the, the asteroid really gave us an out. It was kind of like, well, the cosmic forces did us in, and gee, we have nothing to do with that. Uh, now that we know that even this one time when an asteroid did cause, or at least partially caused mass extinction, that there was still rapid global warming, it, it lets us not get off the hook. We really have to recognize that we are doing geologically major geoengineering to our planet. We're doing an experiment and we do not know the end result other than having looked in deep time history where that end result was always catastrophe. Peter Ward, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. So Peter Ward says that the extinction of the dinosaurs was not due to a single event and he issues a challenge to Dave Morrison. So I've known Dave for a long time and Dave, um, if you were able to walk Montana in the last couple of years, as well as Antarctica, which our teams have done, I think you would see that, in fact, this wasn't a one-punch knockout, but there was a lot of uh, body blows prior to it, and those hits were caused by carbon dioxide. Well, Dave? I've known Peter a long time. I like him. He's a very smart person, and indeed, he may be right. He says, if I had walked the places he had in Montana and Antarctica, I would agree I probably don't know enough to judge the data, but I do know how precise the data are supporting the asteroid impact. That really took place at exactly the point in time when this mass extinction took place. It's very hard to date these other things to show that there really was a decline before the impact. If there are data to demonstrate that, I will welcome it with open arms. But right now, the only clear evidence we have is of the asteroid impact. What about his arguments that, look, for a time preceding this, and he said 65.1 million years ago, so he's talking about, you know, another couple of hundred thousand years before this happens, that, in fact, the temperatures had clearly risen a very significant amount. Maybe the temperatures had risen. We certainly know there was a lot of carbon dioxide from the Deccan volcanic eruptions. What it actually did to the climate, we don't know. Evidence that it was producing extinctions among dinosaurs, we don't have that evidence. If he can bring that evidence, great. Otherwise, I would have to say that the only thing we know for sure is the impact. So 
Dave, is the fundamental problem here, the fact that because you only find the occasional fossil of any given species, that it's very hard to say that the dinos were here this year and not the next year. You can only get a very hazy idea of when they went away. That's true for dinos, but it's not true for these microscopic fossils of marine animals, and they just stop at one point. There's the extraterrestrial material, and what reemerges is something with 90% change in the species in the ocean. That is precisely timed. The dinos, you know, you could argue for a long time if all you had was dino fossils. But Peter has also made the case that they can't find evidence for impactors and any of these other mass extinctions. So that, that makes the case of the dinos a singular event. It's N equals one, if you will, in, in science parlance, and that always makes scientists a little uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. There was a time when I thought impacts might produce, have produced all of these big mass extinctions. We don't see evidence of impacts, but we don't see much evidence of this heating either. As you go back in time, not 65 million, but 250 million or 300 million, the evidence is very sparse. And so you can wave your arms and weave a great theory, and it might be right, but where's the meat? Where's the evidence? It's hard to get. And how do you view the importance of understanding exactly what happened here? Because Peter is saying, look, past his prologue, if this is what helped do in the dinosaurs and all those other species, you know, we've, we've got to really learn something from this. I think that we ought to realize the damage we're doing to the Earth and to our ecosystem on its own, by looking around us, we don't have to go back to the dinosaurs. Dave Morrison, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. And thank you, Peter Ward. Peter Ward is a paleontologist at the University of Washington and the author of A New History of Life, The Radical New Discoveries About the Origins and Evolution of Life on Earth. Dave Morrison is a senior scientist at NASA Ames. So how is it then that you could have two scientists working on this puzzle of what happened at the time that the dinosaurs went extinct, and they can't agree? I mean, they can agree that there was an asteroid impact, but they can't agree on the other events. Why is it so hard to get indisputable evidence of the past? Well, a lot of it is because the past is really in the past. I mean, you're talking 65 million years ago. Imagine 65 million years from now trying to figure out the politics of the 21st century. It might be very hard. All the books are gone or whatever. Especially so, when we're all machines. <laughs> yeah, maybe they don't care about it. But in this case, the, the measuring the CO2 concentrations, that's not so hard. But measuring the temperature, we're talking about a you know, 5 degrees centigrade increase in temperature, it's hard to determine whether that actually happened. And beyond that, does it kill off a lot of species just because it gets warmer? So as we see in the case of the dinos, it's a common story in science. Our explanations are always subject to change. And as we keep digging, our understanding of the past is uh, sure to be altered. But what about the cases when scientific digging turns up a history that we may not be prepared for? Up next, what the powerful tools of genetics can reveal about your biological and cultural past. It's Hidden History on Big Picture Science. 
spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. For most of human history, we've been fascinated with our own origins. How is it that we evolved from single-celled organisms to walking, grunting, texting vertebrates? How did early humans leave Africa, or on shorter timescales, from what part of the world did our great-great-grandparents come? We're also interested in our fate and what will happen next. Our fascination with the story of the city of Atlantis, which we heard about earlier in the show, speaks to that as we ask ourselves how a civilization, if it did exist, could simply disappear into the sea. We're also drawn to the event or the events that spelled the end for the dinosaurs. Could we be threatened with similar tragedies? Now we have powerful tools for exploring our past and peeking into our future, and they come from cutting-edge genetics and genome research. Not only can we plumb ancient human history, but individuals now have access to technology that was once limited to a few scientists that can sequence their personal genome. But as journalist Christine Keneally notes, as eager as we are to go digging into our past, we're not always prepared for what we might find. Her book, The Invisible History of the Human Race, How DNA and History Shape Our Identities and Our Futures. Chris, when archaeologists dig in the physical earth, they want to analyze rock or the fossils that they find. Well, geneticists do something similar, except they're not digging in the earth, they're going through our genomes, and what they're looking for are chemical signatures, the DNA. In both cases, you have to analyze the evidence before you reveal something about the past, but but studying DNA, digging into DNA, is different than traditional digging, isn't it? Yes, it, absolutely it is. Well, until now, with archaeologists, paleoanthropologists, they go out and they look for what remains of previous lives, and, you know, in many cases... It's just really a matter of chance what they find. They find what was dropped, what was lost, what was forgotten or, or accidentally preserved 1,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago. But history's changed now because we can actually use the DNA of living people. We can use their genome to systematically dig back into the past and reveal who someone's ancestors were and where they came from. So this is what genetic historians are looking for. They're trying to find those markers. They're trying to find those people. And actually, in addition to that, as well as looking at the genomes of living people and, and reading the book of history in those genomes, scientists have really recently worked out actually how to read ancient DNA as well. Well, when you talk about geneticists or genomicists looking for biological markers, could you give me an example of one? I'm, I'm assuming that you mean something including but more than the gene for blue eyes. What other things are we finding in our DNA? Right. Some of the most dramatic examples in the U.S. population, of course, are when you've got people who assume their ancestry is purely Northern European, and they discover that actually the significant percentage of their genome comes from Africa, and you get the opposite case as well. So what individuals do is they send off their DNA to these companies that 
don't just look at the ethnic ancestry, but they actually compare them to the genomes they have on database for hundreds, thousands of other people. And they connect you up with those people too. So that's another way, you know, you can get in touch with a fifth cousin and find out they may have worked out their whole family tree. So you can actually find out an extraordinary amount of specifics as well. Well, let's look um, at all what you just said there, because there's a lot of interesting information in what you just said. One, that a person has access to all of this information, that you can go on Ancestry.com or what have you. You can send in a little swab from the inside of your cheek to a company. Yeah. And all of this genetic data are available to someone who is not a scientist. That's extraordinary. It is. It's absolutely amazing. And there are some really great stories in this community of people who do this. And one I came across fairly often was these cold case illegitimacies that were solved hundreds of years later. I spoke to one genetic genealogist who helped a gentleman out. His surname was McHarg, and he sent off his DNA to be analyzed. There were other McHargs in the database, but he could find no connection between them whatsoever. So she did this documentary search for him and she found this female ancestor that he couldn't go beyond, this macaque that he was definitely related to. When he got his results back from the DNA company, he found that, in fact, whilst he didn't have any connection to the macaques, he had many connections to a family with the surname of Bible. And further documentary search showed that there was a family named Bible just down the street from this female ancestor who was a McHarg. And once he contacted the Bibles, he found that actually a number of sort of mysterious dead ends in people's genealogy became open again once they traced their connection through DNA to this family of Bibles, where apparently their son was quite prolific or active or friendly or something like that. <laughs> and so it reaffirms this idea that it is indeed a small world or a small city, a small block because yeah. all of this was happening on the same block, right? That's right. Well, in your book, you talk about these times where people, um, what they reveal gives them a stronger sense of identity. It can kind of validate an identity. But you also give examples where what is revealed to us through the genome can be distressing at times. As you said, it's a lot of information that comes back. And I wonder if you could give an example of when what we learn can be disquieting. Well, one gentleman found that he had French Acadian ancestry that he had previously identified as white, but that he actually was French Acadian, which may not be a difference that a lot of people would think was particularly large. But in fact, he sort of changed his identity from then on in. He just decided that's who he was. And as he wrote back to this researcher, he described some feelings of sort of hostility towards white people, you know, people who with whom he'd previously identified. But apart from that, you know, there were people who, again, this is sort of what's becoming this kind of classic American experience, thought they were entirely Northern European, discovered they had black ancestry, thought that they were entirely African in ancestry, discovered that they had white people in their family tree. And whilst many of them, it was perhaps an uncomfortable experience for some of them, they actually embraced it. But they certainly had fears that their families, their respective families, might be hostile to that kind of information. And, and you know, I think that kind of effect, you know, these individuals sought enlightenment for themselves. But when you have many individuals in society seeking that kind of enlightenment, you're going to get a change across the culture as well. Changes in expectations about who we are, who we come from, and just how mixed and complicated it all is. Well, Chris, one of the amazing things about your book and, and what you've been writing about is when we look at our genomes, 
it does two things. One, it takes us to the past, doesn't it, too? That's right. To our past ancestry, whether long, deep history or, or short history. But it also gives a glimpse into our future. And that's the case when we're looking for risks for certain diseases. And this really raises the question of whether or not we do want to know what's in our genome. Perhaps in the case of looking for the gene for uh, Huntington's disease, where the patient may or may not want to know what those results are. Right. Well, I mean, there's a couple of ways of looking at that. And the most extreme case, the, the sort of the classic case that everyone cites when they're talking about not wanting to know what might happen next is the Huntington's mutation. And it's a very rare but very distressing mutation. It has quite a devastating effect. People often don't develop the illness until their 30s or even later, but it's a degenerative disease and it can change people's personality and make them sort of aggressive to their family and friends, as well as becoming progressively physically degenerative. And eventually people with Huntington's do die of it. And a lot of people who now, you know, who perhaps they know they have Huntington's in their family, so there's a good reason to test, they actually choose not to test. They choose not to test because they just, they don't want to know, they don't want to have that hanging over their heads. And and I think that speaks to, you know, a desire for us all to feel like the future is somewhat open. Um, I spoke to a scientist who is an expert in Huntington's. He also has the Huntington's mutation. And his view was that certainly no one should find out accidentally or should find out just by themselves through one of these companies if they have the Huntington's mutation. That's a pretty strongly held view. And there are very good reasons for that. In fact, the vast majority of conditions that we might find out about things that might affect our health and our future through our genome are much more probabilistic. And they can be affected by things like lifestyle. So you might find out that you have a mutation that predisposes you more to type 2 diabetes than to other people. So to be clear on that, what you're saying is with something like Huntington's, I believe that the disease comes down to a single gene, and if you have that gene, then you will get the disease. It's a, Yeah, it's okay. a single mutation on one copy of the gene, which has two copies, and if you have that mutation, you will get the disease. And then in the other cases you're giving, for example, if you seem to have a, a disposition or you carry a gene that suggests that you might develop type 2 diabetes or a certain kind of cancer, you have some lifestyle choices that you can make, meaning that in in those cases, the genes are not mapping out the inevitability of our future. That's right. It's just deterministic. And in some ways, it may be the case that the genetic contribution is neither stronger nor weaker than a lifestyle contribution, that, you know, you may be higher at risk for something like that. But if you change aspects of your life, you can actually change that. Well, finally, Chris, uh, we've been talking about looking at the past and at the future through the technologies that allow us to do so. But all of this is being ramped up. And now governments are carrying out large-scale you know, genetic studies. Uh, President Obama has proposed a genetic biobank that would have millions of Americans' DNA in it so that we could investigate common diseases and mutations and so forth. So could you give us an idea of just what this future looks like? Is it going to be, I suppose we can't say that it's good or that it's bad. It's certainly going to be different. And can you give us an idea of what this genetic future is going to look like. Actually, I think it is going to be good. I I think it's going to be good. I I think if you look back 100 years or 200 years and you, you look at how little information people had about their own personal health, then, you know, we are in a much better position now. I think people are going to find they have a lot more choice 
and a lot more knowledge about how to look after themselves. And yet even you expressed some concern about having these companies and these public databases with with your information, and it's then it's out of your control, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It's not a simple issue, and I, I think there are concerns. There are concerns about privacy that we all really need to start thinking about, and in some ways the science is racing ahead, and certainly the legislation is lagging behind, particularly, most importantly, from insurance companies who might seek to use that information. But even more important, perhaps, than legislation is people's general knowledge is lagging behind this science, and, and I think the only solution is for us all to get as educated as we possibly can about how our genomes work and what might be in them. Well, Christine Keneally, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much, Molly. Thanks for having me. Christine Keneally is a journalist and author of The Invisible History of the Human Race, How DNA and History Shape Our Identities and Our Futures. So her idea is, overall, we do want to know the past. We do want to know our own histories. And it seems as though some of these technologies are rushing forward fast. And, and yes, we're not prepared for how we accept some of this information, but we're becoming more sophisticated. And in general, it's a good thing. Well, you know, absolutely. That's been the theme of our show. Who wouldn't want to know what happened to Atlantis? They're trying to find out. What about the dinos? What really knocked them out? Well, that's true. But I have to say that when it's something about the past, like my genetic history, that might have an effect on me that I can't change I'm not so sure I do want to know. Well, thanks to the not-so-hidden talents that helped produce the show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to hidden history. And if you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find it on our archive on our website, bigpicturescience.org. If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you'd feel sunk without it, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and uh, do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Leaven it with a little bit of faint praise and email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. No, 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 watch out. you got to keep the Triceratops away from the floats in the parade. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.